Come Holy Spirit and enkindle in the hearts of your faithful the fire of your love. Amen. Good morning, Trinity Church. Indeed, love does not insist on its own way. In May of 1873, Episcopal sisters Constance, Juetta, Thecla, and Amelia arrived in Memphis, Tennessee to launch a school for girls and to operate an orphanage for children left parentless by the Civil War. Upon their arrival from the Order of St. Mary in New York, the Bishop of Tennessee moved out of his residence near the cathedral, and Constance, appointed sister superior of this new foundation, led her small cohort in the renovation of that former home for its new use as a school. Their total assets of $235 came from one of the sisters selling her watch and jewelry. And with this money, they purchased a chalice for $125, leaving only $110 for their needs. As St. Mary's School tells their history, this sacrificial act demonstrated the sisters' first priority, a dedication to the spiritual life. The chalice was part of their daily chapel services at the school and continues in use by the contemporary order in Tennessee, a symbol of faith of self-sacrifice, care, compassion, and hope. After a brisk and busy summer, the sisters planned an October matriculation, but a yellow fever epidemic struck the city. To be clear about that language, an epidemic marks the uncommon increase of a disease within a particular area, while a pandemic like the one we are experiencing marks that swift rise in presence of a disease across regions. Localized yellow fever epidemics of the 19th century brought a terrifying sickness, one that quickly took hold of its host with fever, jaundice, and hemorrhaging from the mouth, the nose, and from the stomach. More than half of its sufferers died within a week. Some 80 years before, Boston, New York, and Philadelphia had suffered their own yellow fever epidemics but as sanitary conditions improved in those more developed cities, hot spots of the disease moved south. Unfortunately, physicians and scientists did not know how to interpret this progression. Knowing only that that stuffy night seemed to accelerate the virus, they supposed that the sickness somehow traveled in stale air. As a remediation, they used toxic tar-derived cleaning agents in homes and in the streets, often leaving behind puddles of water, where mosquitoes, later discovered as the true carrier of the disease, would thrive and worsen the epidemic conditions. In that fall of 1873, Memphis officials divided the city into nursing districts, and the Episcopal sisters postponed the school's opening so that they could care for the sick. Swiftly receiving responsibility for nursing the cathedral district, so-called, a low area where water tended to collect. Except for tea and vespers, which they never missed, the sisters worked from early morning until late at night, their letters record. 
understandably exhausted, frustrated, and disappointed by the unexpected and difficult shift in her charge, Constance wrote to her mother superior in New York, confessing a deep dislike for her new cure. A pouring rain just stirs up the horrible filth of this wretched city and leaves muddy pools to stagnate in the sun. There is no drainage, no, no system of cleaning the city. Everyone carries their kitchen refuse into the back alley, and these pigs, which run about in the streets, eat it up. I have disinfected this house thoroughly from garret to cellar with lime, carbolic acid, and copperas, and today the health officer came and threw tar water all about the place, spoiling our nice galleries I had only just cleaned. Yes, love is patient, not irritable or resentful, not envious or boastful, not arrogant or rude. Though an especially cold winter in 1873 brought its own difficulties and death, its early frosts killed the mosquito population, and the yellow fever epidemic disappeared as quickly and mysteriously as it had arrived. Constance and her companions were soon able to open the school to four students, a number that would, would double by the end of December, double again by the end of the academic year, and by the next fall the school was nearing 100 students. By 1875, the sisters were able to purchase an adjoining lot to increase space for their programs. According to a brochure from its opening, graduation from St. Mary's Memphis would require coursework in English, mathematics, science, and classics. A student who earned the grade of 90% was on the honor roll, and after three years on the honor roll, such a student would receive the newly commissioned St. Mary's Gold Medal. These first years brought a regular, if demanding, rhythm of life for each of the sisters. Yet their letters declare that they lived in a flow of charity and prayers, making what might have been a hard life sweet and all burdens light. Then in the summer of 1878, Memphis suffered another surge of yellow fever a strain far more virulent and widespread than the one endured five years earlier. Of that epidemic's early days, one account reads, thousands left on trains whilst thousands escaped on carriages, in carts, and even on foot. Every road leading out of Memphis was a procession of wagons piled high with beds, trunks, and small furniture. The scenes at the depots could not be pictured when the last overcrowded train moved out, loud and heart-rending cries erupted from all those left behind. I was told that a child and an old person were trampled to death near us on the platform. By the middle of the following week, all who desired escape and had the means to do so were gone. And the city was still and death-like, save for the passing of hearses and wagons for the dead. When this second epidemic began, Sister Constance and Thecla were vacationing 
at St. Gabriel's School in Peekskill, New York. Yet when word of the outbreak reached the pair, they immediately left for Memphis. Stopping briefly for supplies in New York City, one rector shared with his congregations, I have had a varied experience and have witnessed much. But I have seen no braver sight than that which I saw in front of the Trinity Infirmary just this evening, those sisters sitting alone in the carriage, which was to carry them into the peril of death. Once again, Constance and the sisters closed St. Mary's and turned the school into a dispensary. The sisters also kept open the church home orphanage and local officials requested that they add to their roles residents of the Canfield Asylum, an orphanage for black children under the sponsorship of the cathedral. The bishop and the sisters agreed and the expanded operation committed to serve the ranks of orphans being added every day because of the disease without any distinction as to, new ra as to race or religion. In 1878, in Reconstruction Memphis, without any distinction as to race or religion. From an account of the sisters bringing children from their home to the asylum, which was thought to be in a less affected region than the ravaged cathedral district. On our way, we were stopped by a mob of men who blocked our carriage and protested against the children being brought from the infected districts into the new neighborhood. One man said, I have brought my wife and children from the lower parts of the city to save them from the fever, and I won't have these orphans brought here. The leader of these men flourished a roll of paper, which he said was from the mayor, and proceeded to read aloud portions of it in a violent language. Sister Constance listened to each man's complaint and then said with great calmness and gentleness, Sirs, is it possible that you would have us refuse to these children the very protection you have obtained for your own? Her words and still more her tones produced a marked effect on the angry mob. And noticing this, I said quickly, are you not willing to trust the sisters when a few of their number said, yes, we are. And all gave way, allowing the sisters and the children to pass. See, love is kind and does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. The succeeding events that Constance recounts in her letters to Mother Harriet in New York set in stark and humbling contrast the pandemic inconveniences most of us outside of hospitals and direct care fields have experienced. Two young girls spending two days in a two-room cottage with the unburied bodies of their parents. Carts with eight and nine corpses in rough boxes rumbling down the street, the cathedral dean writing to the wider church for aid, pleading to meet these requirements all around us, pressing in on us, we have absolutely nothing. 
As seemed inevitable, the fever caught Sister Constance. Though ill, she continued her care for the sick until her strength finally gave way. One of the sisters discovered Constance lying on the couch. I knew at once that her condition was grave, she writes. Yet Constance insisted that it was only a slight headache and would not listen to my entreaties that she go to bed, but instead continued dictating letters. Her face was flushed with fever. She talked of resuming her work among the sick as soon as possible. They were about to move her and set her on a comfortable mattress, but she refused, saying, It is the only one you have in this whole house, and if I have the fever, you will have to burn it when I'm dead. Of the night that followed, another sister wrote that she could hear Constance's low moan throughout the evening. About midnight, she writes, I heard Constance say, Hosanna, repeating it, Hosanna, Hosanna, again and again, more and more faintly. This was her last word. She still continued the low, soft moan of one unconscious, though not in pain, until at 7 a.m., St. Mary's bell rang out on the air. At that clear sound, which she had always loved, whose call she had never refused, the moaning ceased. And at 10 o'clock, her soul entered the paradise of perfect love. Twenty-eight years old when she arrived to Memphis and only 33 when she died. The Episcopal Church's calendar of saints remembers Constance and her companions on September 9th, the date of Constance's death. The high altar of St. Mary's Cathedral memorializes the sisters' faithfulness, the only altar in the entire Episcopal Church dedicated exclusively to the memory of women. St. Mary's, with an enrollment of nearly 1,000, continues to serve girls and young women from pre-kindergarten through high school. With those treasured verses of 1 Corinthians threaded into Constance's story, her story, which so movingly embodies those verses, force the middle section of the Apostle Paul's hymn to love builds to an animating crescendo. Love bears all things. That is, love is the fundamental material of all creation. You and me and, and all of us, all the cosmos, God's great and glorious expression of love. And love believes all things, hopes all things. See, love is the very essence of all faith. Love is the source of every hope. Love endures all things. Love never ends. Love is the most powerful force in the cosmos. Only love will never fail. And nothing can overcome love, not even death. Most fundamentally, to love is to set another's needs before one's own. And as her story testifies, Sister Constance set her heart and soul, her, her bone and teeth to that loving charge. Those who knew Constance described her as a gifted artist, possessed of charm which might have adorned the most brilliant social circle. Yet instead she chose to order her life by love. 
Even when she was frustrated, even when she was afraid, even when she wondered whether love could really be enough, she loved fully and she loved well. Never naive, she understood that only in putting the needs of others before her own would she walk with the risen Christ before her and the Holy Spirit at her back, even if the cost of her love would be her own life. She had made her decision to walk in love. People of God in the loving mystery of Christ at the loving call of Paul, the loving model of Constance, be sure that only love, only love, can redeem and restore this broken world. Not that all of us would go and join a religious order and crash the doors of the Brigham with our good intentions, but that here on this square and there in the church, every day, everywhere, in our daily lives, we would as unrelentingly, indefatigably offer one another this generous, gracious, kind, and patient love. In the name of God.